You're listening to CFRC 101.9 FM, Brought Back Home, with your host, Matt Mudo. Today I have Eric and Helena in with me, two very accomplished local jazz musicians. I've seen them play in a bunch of projects. They've played in a gajillion things together. Welcome, guys. Hello, thank you for having us. So the name of the project that we're previewing today is Room Tone. Do you want to mention how you came to that name just really quickly? Um, We were basically thinking about us being sort of a more subdued version of the things that we're used to playing. Usually we're in more um, outlandish funk scenarios together, but we wanted this to be a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more cool jazz kind of thing. And so we wanted a name that reflected that. And uh, Room Tone is a film expression for... Uh, the general tone of any given room. So the atmosphere, the background noises, the sound of a faucet running, the street traffic going by that any given set would have. And so before they film in a space, they take a couple minutes of just human silence, but they record the tone of the room. And I thought that would be a cool name for a little guitar saxophone combo. Yeah, I think it's pretty fitting. Yeah, Yeah, because like it's, we're used to playing in a, larger setting with a lot more noise like usually with a very funky bass player and a uh a subdued usually but can be pretty wild uh drummer so (laughs) yeah playing with just two instruments is is very different there's a little bit more space you can actually hear the room there's a lot more space yeah it's been nice to have the breathing space yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) so we had helena and liam on for episode two of our show when we were debuting Alto Stratus to the world, <laughs> and I think everyone that listened gave some really great feedback. Oh, that's awesome. Helena, as you know, I saw Liam as well before we came into the studio today, and we were talking about the fact that we labeled it, or you guys labeled it as jazz, and that is what modern jazz is, because jazz has influenced so many genres and subgenres of jazz that, like, it is, it's pervasive, but... This project, Room Tone, the two of you playing today for us, is a lot more traditional. Yeah, it's it's definitely um, Alto Stratus was a sort of electronic lo-fi project. It's all um, samples and a lot of MacGyvering, and <laughs> uh, this we're we're really doing traditional jazz in the sense that it, it's kind of just a vessel for us to practice jazz standards, which is this sort of um, collective consciousness of jazz musicians playing the same song similarly to all bluegrass players knowing folk songs um it's been sort of an opportunity for us to go out and and just play through a whole bunch of a whole bunch of jazz standards and that's sort of what we recorded today Thank you. 
this really started because we were both realized that we we're just going to practice at home and we're like why don't we just practice together and outside <laughs> and then maybe put a hat out and, and see what happens and see what happens and then you know <laughs> one thing leads to another and you have a group yeah so when matt found us we were out busking <laughs> and we've just been kind of hitting the streets doing what both of us have been doing inside for hours on end yeah. and just doing it outside for hours on end and yeah. um for the the benefit of the public yeah contributing to kingston's cultural atmosphere That's right. and um we've been bringing life back to the streets a bit <laughs> yeah a little bit and people have been very generous yeah i think it shows because i remember when i when i did see you guys busking you're both very happy to be there so i think it shows that when you're being positive uh, and you're putting that positivity out there even when you're not playing you're just smiling before taking a break like people like to see that it makes them feel good and bringing that energy through music and just performing has to be uplifting for a lot of people right now. I'm biased because I know you guys a little bit, but uh, I was smiling like a dummy the whole time, even if it was under my mask. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, the, the mask. Yeah. Like we were saying, you guys have been playing together for a while. Just off the top of my head, even before you guys knew who I was, I've seen you play with the Wilderness Musiki Jazz Band, and you played a cabaret performance at the Isabel live stream uh, series. Do you want to talk about what it was like to be in front of a camera that was being broadcasted to people rather than a crowd? I think it was an interesting um, experience because every time Helena and I have played in that stage setting, anytime there was an audience is because it was a dress rehearsal because we used to study at Queens and Queens University does actually use that stage for some ensemble performances. So it was definitely different to see just instead of a audience, just a bunch of cameras. And also exciting because, you know, this is like a new age of performance. This is a new era that it might be more common for this stuff to happen. And to my knowledge, I don't think that the performance hall even had that equipment or technology purchased or in their possession before this. So they purchased it for this which means now they have their digital concert hall all set up and that didn't exist before. And it's really cool that they have that now. But as for the experience, um, it was definitely a little jarring, but I feel like we also got more used to cameras throughout the time leading up to it because we were aware that was going to be very different. So we decided to take, take some time to really try to get used to that aspect of performance instead of just playing in front of a live audience. I think I I completely agree. Anytime we, we get the privilege of, of being in the hall, it's an incredible experience because just acoustically, it's empowering how great you sound and how great the equipment sounds. Like it's just the, the best of the best. It's the rare air. And to be in there and have them have it all set up with all the lights and fog machine <laughs> and um, this weird enormous GoPro that spins um, was was super, super cool. I think the thing that I found the most jarring of it was the lack of audience engagement, which we've kind of gotten used to over the last, what has it been now, six months? Just when a, a tune would finish and we felt like really good about it mm -hmm. to be met with silence was kind of surreal. And then at the end of the show, to have it just be over and silent normally you expect this kind of like 
some some sort of something to occur at the very end but instead it was just like okay we're done some extra noise yeah well at least just feedback like hearing positive reaction yeah Yeah. you feel better maybe even if it's in between performances or pieces it's going to make you feel even better for the next one right yeah i think finishing a show and having no audience be there that you can see to have received it it's kind of like when you're walking up your staircase in the dark and you go to get a step and you just don't get anything and you just stumble a little bit. And then as soon as we got off, um, Jesse told me that he was looking at the statistics of how many people had clicked on the video. And he said 6,000 people. Like as soon as we finished, it was 6,000 people had at some point clicked on it. That's like... And the capacity of the Isabel is only like... uh, Like between 500 and 600 from what I would Yeah, like I mean max a thousand. So even at that... Yeah. concept it's it's just insane that the amount of eyes on the stage was more than could have been more yeah. than what would have even fit that's very impressive engagement for a live stream yeah yeah and it's great that there's a video out there mortalizing it yeah it is a beautiful it's a beautiful video i know right yeah a, an amazing opportunity though it was it was great <laughs>
lot of musicians here who are really talented and normally during times where you're allowed to be in a packed room in a venue you get to witness that a little bit more and right now it's an interesting transitionary phase before that returns even if it does does it look different that's a whole different conversation but the fact that places like the Isabel and even independent streams, but especially when a public space can be used to give a free, the fact that it's free to a free live mm -hmm. performance, not only to locals who are probably going to be the predominant group that are going to see it or people who live in and around Kingston. But if uh, I'm sure there's people that were tuning in that were friends and family or friends of other people who are watching who are local and they heard about it. And that's just a really cool thing. We talked with Mariah Horner of the Cellar Door Project about theater and the fact that we're doing the Shortwave Theater Festival here on the CFRC in November. What that is, is we have some radio theater recordings and one live performance being broadcasted and eventually recorded and distributed online as well. And the fact that in theater, there's a, a barrier for entry sometimes because like you have the classical sense. And we'll get into this with music in a second. But first, I want to touch on the whole accessibility part. If you have it streamed online you and you live in a different city, like I said, I feel like predominantly the viewers and listeners were from Kingston. But there's definitely going to be a group that wasn't. And the fact that they had that ability to witness the performance is pretty cool. And they don't have to be in Kingston. They don't need to travel here and they don't need to go sit in the seat. Yeah, that definitely contributed to the click numbers, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, that's a cool concept of you can be a virtual tourist and like maybe get a sense of a different community music scene just from live streams. I would I would be interested in, in seeing some other scenes like that. Yeah. And I've definitely watched a lot of a lot of live streams over the course of this time. It's just been cool to see what people are doing at home. The tiny or, desk stuff, right? Yeah, lots of tiny desk stuff and, and just people making a go of it um, it's interesting to see how it's evolved because i know in the beginning um the berlin phil was doing their digital concert hall mm -hmm. free for like any anyone for like a month and i enjoyed a couple of um you know recordings because why not it's berlin phil that's gonna be mm -hmm. good but then now like a lot of people just like over the course of the quarantine people have been able to make new music or just had hay fever cabin fever really and then decided i'm just gonna collaborate digitally now and i have the setup now and let's just do it yeah yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. I've seen people release like big band arrangements of their own and like you can do some incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. We live in a really cool time. Like people like to romanticize, oh, you know, I wish I lived in the 60s because such and such band was there or this political movement or event was happening or I got to wear this clothing that's not in style <laughs> anymore. But moving forward, there's always like new opportunities, technology, and experiences that weren't experienced before. And in that sense, I think it's just really, I know the pandemic has been really hard for a lot of people, not only mentally and emotionally, but a lot of people have been gotten really sick and had really long-term effects being made on their well-being, but also people have passed away. It's like, it's that's incredibly sad. As humanity, we've been able to make the best of it. And I think especially the art scene in music while we're still figuring out a way to make money consistently it's cool to watch the progression happen i think a lot of artists and musicians and 
really anyone who's deemed non-essential by the entire world. Um, I think a lot of people have been prone to having some like mental health problems during all of this too. And how has that affected people's like overall health and well-being? I know that we definitely felt like a strong sense of uncertainty and there were a couple straight months where like we hadn't played music with another human being. And I found that oh, really yeah. detrimental to my sense of self and rhythm. <laughs> the chops were rusty. <laughs> yeah, everything was um, just ensemble playing skills just gone. Yeah, but it, you don't realize how a good making music with other people is for your soul until you kind of like that was the first time I think I've ever had that taken away from me since I was like a first ever doing any kind of music. I don't think I've ever had a stretch of three months of never seeing another musician. That's and true. No, I've, oh. I haven't experienced that. Yeah, that's, yeah, it was very jarring. You're right. I've never had that experience of just like having it taken away utterly. Cause like usually when we play, it's more like a conversation. I like to think of it as a conversation cause you know, it's a classic thing that jazz musicians say, like, like when you're playing jazz, jazz you're just talking to each other just yeah. with your instruments and your lines. <laughs> but you know, yeah, totally. it's been a while since I talked to anyone both like, like literally <laughs> yeah. and also musically, but yeah. Yeah, and I think it's that sense of that sense of connection, the communication mm -hmm. and the connection that um when that's lost, I think that's what becomes detrimental to the health of everyone. Like it's we're talking about it from an artist's perspective, but a lot of people lost their sense of community from not being able to even go to school or if people are going to church or just Hang out at their you can't go to your family. Kind of thing. Yeah, there are yeah. people that even like going out to bars is a community mm -hmm. and a yeah. lot of people lost that sense of community and I think that that's had a negative impact on people's health. But it's been nice trying to find ways of, of getting back into it. Getting back into it, working around it safely. Yeah. Definitely. And I think people have been really receptive to us being out busking because I think collectively everyone has missed life and experiencing art and seeing live music compared to other summers when we've been out. I, I feel more appreciated. I, I definitely feel that as well.
Talking about what we want to discuss next on the air, something we touched on was the history of jazz music and where jazz came from versus where it is today. I think often, and you guys probably agree with me, jazz is often thought of as an institution much like classical music is. It's definitely become an institutionalized music. I, I have so many friends from high school who think I'm very fancy for playing <laughs> jazz music as if it's um super like high life society kind of thing on part of like classical and i admit that does have some of those allures because like if you watch certain media they'll definitely have fine jazz in the corner of like <laughs> the super fancy parties something that i always remember and i it's because i saw it as a kid was that scene in spongebob when they're listening to jazz music, trying to be adults or something, and they're trying to like see if they understand like why people listen to it, and they go, "Nope, this is stupid." Uh, yeah, that's what makes when I say that. That's what I I think some people get alienated from the institutionalization. Institutionalization of jazz. is a good is a good word for it. In an academic music sense, there's a general blanket term of Western art music, and that's sort of a description of anything in the Western world which would be acceptably played in sort of a formal setting, like a, a concert hall, that kind of establishment. And just to, just to clarify, the Western world is like the colonial it's, and post-colonial. Yeah, well, I, I should so say then, not post-colonial, still <laughs> colonial cool. part of the world. Yeah, that's um, it is a problematic expression, mm-hmm. and it is rooted in colonialism, but it's essentially like what commonly across Europe and North America is acceptable formal music um, that could be played at a festival or in a venue like the Isabel, a venue like the National Arts Center. Um, So we're talking symphony and only really in the last couple decades, 30 years, I would say, probably jazz. I think that it kind of started around 
Billie Holiday, they would they would start having her do really big gigs, and then Charlie Parker and a few other people were starting to sort of meld with symphonies, and that became sort of the entryway of jazz being a more commonly accepted, formalized music. Um, prior to that, it would have just been sort of a popular music, kind popular of bar kind of tradition. Actually, it didn't it ended up on air, and that's like TVs. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I know they had a lot of production, like, and we talk about Billie Holiday, but I also think about Ella Fitzgerald and her, like, playing with, like, massive jazz orchestras. Jazz orchestras mm-hmm. probably was when we could start seeing it become more of a institutionalized kind of thing. What are some artists you guys associate with a jazz orchestra? Something, Somebody like Gershwin? Gershwin, not so much for myself. I usually think of, like... Jazz orchestras-wise, kind of like the more old-timey Tommy Dorsey, ah. Glenn Miller. Because yeah. those are more big bandy, but they also made liberal use of strings at times. Thad Jones mm-hmm. had a... Like, they'll add basically the expression orchestra. They'll add to it. So it's the Thad Jones orchestra, the yeah, Glenn Miller orchestra. Yeah. Like, they'll... It's usually kind of a... That is the album sort of thing. So even Charlie Parker and his orchestra, I think, is an album title. And, yeah, because that was when he was playing with a jazz orchestra. I mean, yeah. honestly, I, I start calling it an orchestra personally when I start hearing jazz strings. Yeah. Because you don't usually have a string section in a jazz band or a jazz setting, but for orchestras, it's fantastic. Yeah, so I would say anything that's like like that, heavily arranged, heavily orchestrated for mm-hmm. more than what we would view as a jazz combo would be a horn player and a rhythm section. A jazz band just... would be with a normal amount of like five... <laughs> A horn section and a rhythm section kind of thing. Yeah. And, and then it's, it's just, the jazz orchestra is just... It's such an interesting development because it, it did start from such different, it's such a different place. That like it was just, mm-hmm. you have a couple people, you got some instruments show up together, play a couple tunes. Yeah. Part of it being more formalized is it's more rooted in classical music, which was more acceptable to, I guess, the higher brow well-to-do crowd and that's sort of how it got greater venues and sort of a little bit more prestige and it was actually like the entryway for any black musicians to be a part of any orchestra really the people that we mentioned charlie parker and ella fitzgerald they're being prominent jazz musicians and the emergence of the jazz orchestra was sort of the first time that they would even allow black musicians to be a part of the orchestra and it was just because it was the pure talent of it to have them featured and representing the genre. So the emergence of the jazz orchestra was kind of what brought that about. Then it just brings it all back to how problematic it is to have fancier music than other music. Yeah. It's just rooted in colonialism and elitism. I mean, I think even in the pop music world, that's still an issue that some pop music is seen as more civilized than other pop music. Recorded music in general hasn't been around that long, but the reason classical music's been around for so long is because you would have different interpretations and symphonies doing it for years and years and years and years. It's been documented. It's been yeah written. I mean, by document, I mean like it's been written down. People have them. People know them. Tell stories about, oh, Beethoven's exactly. latest third symphony. Oh, let's hear that one again. But, you know, we have a lot of music historians and like, I think, I think Bartok was one person who would go around to different locations on and um take the first recordings of some of the stuff and then using his compositions that became art music which was 
Interesting. I remember learning that sometimes he couldn't get recordings, even though he wanted to. I'm pretty sure he wanted some because the music was specific for like ritual sometimes like for their culture it had more meaning than just you listen to this melody and i like it so listen to it again no mm -hmm. it's specific for certain things yeah, it was, it was, yeah that's a really good made point. for a purpose yeah and i think that that's part of like being being a conscious musician and being a conscious creator is like understanding the significance of what you're referencing like gershwin was jewish and grew up in new york and I think it's well you needn't. So when he was doing some of the scoring for Porgy and Bess, he would even he would use common chants from the Torah. He would use them as as sort of I didn't know that. So Gershwin is able to reference melodies that are often found in a synagogue because he's Jewish. And then he is able to use it in jazz music. But if Bartok's going around just kind of thieving melodies without any context, that's where it crosses the line. I mean, there's like certain steps to take. I don't see issues with liking it, but I do have reservations about how we present it to people. Like, like you can't just take this yeah. music and then give it to other people to play. Maybe like you have to try to understand why they have this music, what it mm -hmm. means to these people, and if they're willing to share it, maybe have some of them come as performers. This is very interesting because I feel this conversation applies to so many genres of music. Yeah, That's absolutely. Kind of and it's genres. it's yeah. insane. No one has really done it right yet consistently for a year stretch in, in public popular music or anything. Like there's consistent cultural appropriation and just kind of internalized racism. But I think for us as musicians, and any artist, and I know that for myself as an educator, I think that the most important thing to consider is the difference between appreciating a culture and appropriating a culture. Part of what goes into appreciating a culture is knowing where it comes from, having a link to it, giving credit where credit is due, and a lot of just general respect. And then it crosses the line to cultural appropriation when you are manifesting something that is not your own culture and you are not being sensitive to it. If that is not knowing the context of certain like religious melodies and you're using that anyways. Yeah, just because you think it sounds cool, you, you don't understand, or maybe you do understand, but don't appreciate the context. When people talk about cultural appropriation, they don't, it's really hard. It is very hard to describe why that's not okay. Yeah. It is. There, there is a clear line between appreciation and appropriation. If we go into examples, it'll it'll come across easier, I think. An example of cultural appreciation would be someone of their own culture referencing something and bringing pride to it. Um, if you think about groups that are using their own culture and changing it, but appreciating it and maybe bringing awareness to their community or bringing attention to something that is often overlooked. So if you think about like A Tribe Called Red is I think a collective now of indigenous DJs and they do a bunch of really cool stuff. They collaborate with Tanya Tajak. They have throat singers in. They do like ring dancing and it's just all about like celebrating um, indigenous music but mixed with cool electronic fusion. That's cool. That's awesome. On the other spectrum of things, it becomes cultural appropriation when you see artists in pop culture using darker foundation and trying to embody an R&B figure, but they don't have any ties to 
black culture and they're just trying to embody things that have been stigmatized for the black community for a long time and profit off of that. I think the part about benefit and profit yeah, is, is, is important too because you can you can try to do those things and, and it can not work if you're appropriating someone's culture. Yeah. And that's obviously, it still doesn't make it okay. Personally, I think it's even worse when someone sees success from it. I think what's important to keep in mind is whether or not you're profiting off someone else's culture. Mm-hmm. And how is... And the key word there is profit. Because you can appreciate something, no matter what race you are, from any race. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely do my fair share of that. I enjoyed many different things. Food, for one. Food, for one. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Sometimes you just get... You're so into it that you learn so much about it. But at that point, like when you when you really love it that much, you become involved with it so much. If you end up making some decent money from it, it's like, mm, okay. Yeah. But then like there's so many other factors there. But I think to stay on topic, the profit, like if whether or not you're actually liking this or whether you're profiting from it is a huge indicator of what you're, if what you're doing is in the right place. Mm-hmm. And are you able to be respectful to the culture and what dynamic is being portrayed? Mm-hmm. Like if there's a power dynamic at play that you're representing, the example that I was trying to remember, I know it's a little bit old, but in like 2008, Gwen Stefani had this song, Harajuku Girls, yeah. and it was just her and then um, a bunch of Japanese Harajuku girl type figures. I don't really know what she was going for with that, I, like it, as background dancers and her I with... Um, she was wearing a kimono, I think. And it, what's wrong with that is a lack of respect, a lack of connection to the culture, and just direct profiting, and um, just kind of perpetuating things that don't benefit a community. I think that's also a big part of it. You One might look at that and go like, oh, maybe she just likes Japanese culture, but one might also analyze it critically and ask, I mean, it's always worth asking questions like, does this, how does this represent that culture? is she standing to gain from this or is she just trying to show that she likes a culture and also if she is profiting from it how much is it on her to really like give back to that community she just took that i those ideas those symbols from really and i think we have a lot of responsibility as artists to continue to inform ourselves and and pay attention to these things because sometimes productions will be organized that don't really function ethically and don't really properly appreciate cultures and queens has had their fair share of slip-ups in recent years the othello production was like a big a big flop oh this is like i don't know if we want to <laughs> there, get into this a, people can look <laughs> we don't have to get into the, into the, the politics the, of queens but i think you have accountability as an artist to keep that in mind keep that in mind and behave ethically and appreciate where the music or the art or whatever you are producing where it comes from. So for us as jazz musicians, it's incredibly important to acknowledge that this music is rooted in freedom and the empowerment of black people trying to fight for their rights. In an earlier context and even in modern day times, the Black Lives Matter movement has had like a lot of jazz musicians in New York marching. And it's incredibly important because it's not something that's over. As we perform the genre, you have to acknowledge that otherwise it's just lost. So much pop music in general, if we want to talk about Black Lives Matter for a second, maybe not the institution, but the movement itself. There's, I would say, most music that is consumed 
in a popular setting has been inspired some way and trailblazed by predominantly, but not only, there's Oscar Peterson being Canadian, but African-American musicians. We'll just, I'll try to be quick here because we want to talk about you guys in, in jazz and how that connects with what we're doing today. But we saw it with rock music several times and blues music several times, like Elvis Presley, for example. And like, I wouldn't say that Elvis, I don't know the guy personally, but he was absolutely must have been friends with lots of performers who were a part of that scene. And he was the Trojan horse, I guess, to get it, that music to white people and for them to be okay with it, which is super unfortunate. Mm-hmm. We saw it with Led Zeppelin when I guess they kind of changed blues because it went from like blues to hard rock. But they're so they had so many songs that weren't theirs and never credited anyone. And the argument that's often given by Led Zeppelin fans who don't think they did anything wrong is that blues musicians steal from each other all the time. Well, most blues musicians before them were poor and didn't make that much off of yeah said. made next to nothing while this band beca- became like a, a worldwide money-making brand off the backs of these people exactly work, basically don't get me wrong i love led zeppelin but <laughs> i think i can appreciate them but like you guys said being aware of all the problems surrounding it is important yeah and i, I yeah. personally like i'm not out here trying to knock down knock down other performers or like tell people start no that, that's ne- this that's stuff never like that. that's never that's the like, intent right you know, yeah. the intent isn't to knock down exactly. it's to it's, it's just to, to improve exactly, and help yeah. educate people and stop ignorance yeah because like go ahead enjoy this music if you enjoy it i don't want to i don't want to make you feel bad for enjoying this music but i do want you to be aware of some issues that surround that mm-hmm. music and i want musicians to be aware of this long-standing history and pattern man it happened with reggae too it's ridiculous it's insane it's all over Mm -hmm. the place yeah wow like what a conversation i did not expect to have this conversation also this is a side note that i don't even know if you want to get into but do you know the the tv show cops no (laughs) what so how do you not eric sorry how do you not know what cops i don't was i I didn't watch that much tv guys cops is essentially a, a live action TV show. They just follow cops? Where it follows cops and they go on these dramatic arrest scenes and they tackle people and like they show people in their worst states. It, it glorifies It's pro-authoritarian. Yeah. Yeah, it's, okay. it's pro-police propaganda. Yeah. And it's, it's gross and they don't really respect people's privacies and they catch people at kind the worst of like moments of their gotcha life. kind of show? It's, it's problematic on a, on a lot of levels, but one... Thing that is awful is that they use reggae as the f-ing theme song. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Holy cow! They stopped production on <laughs> okay, it. They did. Not? They did stop. Thank God. They did stop production on yeah. it. But like, my point is that in recent years, we haven't noticed the problematicity of a lot of our culture, and if we don't start now, it won't happen. That's, that's people didn't true. start. That's people so didn't true. notice for years that reggae, a music of like black freedom was being used in a cop show that was predominantly arresting people of color. Cause it's, I was, I'm assuming it's an American show. Yeah. So mm, yeah. Not only that, but when reggae was really big in, uh, man, I always mix up the sixties and seventies. 
it was big at some point in one of those decades where it was like came to North America and Europe. The musicians themselves never made money on like a whole bunch of albums that were No, sold. totally not. It wasn't and until much later. The yeah. same thing with with most early day jazz artists. Like we were talking about the the Miles Davis um, biopic, Birth of the Cool. And then Quincy Jones also has a documentary talking about just his, his early days. And they're paid like not enough. They're not I enough. Quincy Jones seeing, was writing tunes for like a dollar. I remember seeing a um, quote from Quincy Jones. I think this is straight up from his Wikipedia article, I think. <laughs> but to, to, from what I recall from it, he said that he was in, like him and a bunch of other musicians were in like the best jazz ensemble in the world. And they were barely keeping up. They were like still starving. And they had the best musicians of their genre that was massively popular and they still couldn't make money. And then, I mean, this just goes, the, the rest of the quote is like, he realized that in order to make money, he would need to learn how to play the music business rather than music. So that's something that is talked about a lot. I think the barriers are starting to break down for that information to be more accessible to musicians or just more obvious, not even just more accessible. But at the same time, you're that's basically just doing another job on top of being a musician. I'm a huge fanboy of these guys and I haven't really admitted that I'm a fanboy until recently because my friends pointed out. Wolfpack, those guys not only are incredibly talented musicians, but they're 100% independent and they had to work really hard as basically businessmen in order to have any sort of success where they can be self-sustaining yeah it's insane yeah they're they're geniuses but not you know not everyone has either the education or the mental capacity or the ability to not only be incredible musicians but to also market yourselves know how to play the music business as well as music and that's what labels are supposed to be there for but unfortunately they kind of just take over the years it's just it's they took more and more. I guess they all were always taking a lot. <laughs> they but, were always taking. But yeah, it's becoming more and more obvious to musicians how much major labels were and still are taking. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that we need to take a step back and, and think about a little bit more actively is what goes into someone actually being successful and how much of that is rooted in chance versus hard work versus just pure privilege. Like... It's a combination of all of them. Which is also still chance. Yeah. Which is also still chance. Yeah. like (laughs) It's a life lottery. Yeah, the life lottery. Yeah. Lower income areas are significantly less likely to have a band program with functioning instruments. Within Kingston, I don't think with most of the music programs in the high schools, I don't think they have 100% working instruments all the time. And there's never enough funding. And And the opportunity is not getting any better with them current funding in, in this yeah province. what's deemed essential and what's not by exactly. our government and yeah. also i mean a lot of classes are moving online you're not going to have much arts going on now oh my god that I, is yeah so problem i can't remember if this actually made it onto the air for one of our shows but we were talking about the fact that one of the first things that i did when the pandemic was at its peak was is it possible to play music online, live with other people? The answer is yes, but you can't really 
unless you're very close and you both have a very good internet connection, you can't rhythmatically be on the same pace. So bringing that back to education and classes moving online, what's going to happen to music education for young, not only young adults, but young kids, even if it's just a recorder in elementary school, you know? There's a limit to how far Skype lessons can take you. Yeah. That like, and also, I mean... It's very ambitious to do online ensemble play. I'm telling you right now, I don't know if you've looked into it, Eric, but I spent a month and a half trying to perfect it and it can't be done. I just, I never bothered because I don't believe, I've played enough video games online to know that ping is terrible. There are services. So there's one open open source project I'm going to mention because I I think it has potential in the future uh, called Jamulus. It's an open source uh, software that, lets musicians connect over the internet and basically live stream their audio to each other. That would be cool. That'd be like, oh, this is gross. But do you remember like Omegle? Oh, Oh, absolutely. But like that, but for musicians, that'd be cool. That would be... So that's essentially what it is. You could just drop in and out of sessions and see what skill level and what kind of music people are playing. And the fact that you can not only talk with your microphone, but you can talk with your percussion you can talk with your keyboard it's super cool cool. unfortunately our internet infrastructure while it is incredible and a great resource is not there yet for live music performances like that do you remember when they did a holograph concert of tupac (laughs) this is i feel like i feel like in that's <laughs> that we want to talk about <laughs> problematic like, do you, do you problematic um uh, use oh, of yeah yeah no no doubt on that artists one. okay culture that's... in exploiting musicians yeah okay um but that's but anyways i feel like that's digress. what we're on on track to be doing is just holograph jams Hol- holographic jams yeah everybody gets a holographic projector well i mean people thought it was insane when like Back to the Future 2 came out and they had video calls and it's like, oh yeah, that's that's so far in the future. Like the year 2000 <laughs> yeah. seems so far away. Oh man. And the one thing they nailed was video calls. So I think eventually when everyone gets internet, that's the speed of light. Even, so this is crazy, even at the speed of light, um, sound can't travel at the speed of light because it's sound. Yeah. Even if it's being sent over a cable that travels at the speed of light. Yeah. So you could never really play live accompanied and accompany someone from here to australia it's just it's just it's it can't happen it's different scientifically yeah. you know what, it can't you know happen what actually always um gets me like thinking a bit it's it's have you guys ever watched the freddie mercury like movie wait the most recent one yeah the most recent yeah. one i remember one scene like it was, they were playing like i think it was a live aid it might have just been a regular queen concert who knows <laughs> but you could it's a massive crowd right and you can see the ripple effect in the in the audience because they're they're all beating on time or what they think is on time but that's just how long it takes the sound to travel cool so when i thought about it i was like hmm i guess monitors are really useful (laughs) that's that's that was my main takeaway but yeah that just that stuck with me clearly this has been quite the conversation <laughs> yeah, before we take it. another break do you guys want to like do you want to say anything else on these topics well i feel like on the heavier issues i would want to like add a little like the most important thing for us and for all artists is to just 
listen and learn and try to be better and try to be more culturally sensitive and respectful. It's fine to like what you like, but do your homework mm-hmm. to make sure you're not hurting yeah. anyone. Yeah. And, and sometimes even if you think that you are making that realization, sometimes you're not, you know, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with admitting that I've made some observations that I didn't realize years past. It's just about improving yourself no one's perfect like we're not we're not talking about this topic saying that we are perfect and you need to be more like us that's not the point Mm -hmm. the point is to educate yourself and to just try and be better and self-improvement is important Mm -hmm. not only for the case of learning about cultural appropriation but just in life in general you can never be too old or too experienced to grow and better yourself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. cool let's take a break yeah yeah Thank you. 
Welcome back to the CFRC on the show Brought Back Home. I'm returning with Eric and Helena, and we talked a lot about the historical significance and problems with cultural appropriation in jazz and how jazz has turned into this institutionalized, fancy, high-class thing when originally it was meant as an expression of freedom that was basically anti-racism, anti-slavery. We want to say that if you want to talk to any of us, you can reach out to us on social media, on Instagram or Twitter, wherever you can find us. And if you want to pick up this conversation, please send us a message. With that being said, I think maybe we should move on, even though you can really never say enough about that whole topic. And again, talking with these two very talented musicians and great people, let's talk a little bit about how you guys met and your whole journey together through the whole music scene here. The first time I saw you guys, I think I mentioned this earlier, was at a jazz night at Musiki. had a very good time, but I, I had no idea how long you guys have been playing together. Or maybe not necessarily how long, but how many times you guys have played together. <laughs> wow, that's a totally different... <laughs> I think the length is an easier question to answer. Yeah, well, to yeah. quantify, sure, but... <laughs> How many times? It's kind of interesting to think about, actually. That, I, I never it's, really thought It's about probably that. like five times a week for the last like five years, except for quarantine. <laughs> five years? Even? <laughs> I think it's years. the fifth year, right? We've known each other throughout um, all of undergrad and have, I would say, probably played together in nearly every ensemble that's a possibility at Queen's. We've done many, many musical theater productions outside of the Queen's department. We've kind of come up alongside each other in chamber ensemble sort of scenarios eric did trombone quartet i did saxophone quartet that's very similar and kind of niche in, in number of instruments yeah <laughs> and also material making the instruments but yeah um friendly competition for the past four years <laughs> profitable collaboration for the past one <laughs> past one I, I guess we only really started like collaborating as jazz musicians like directly instead of through the the institution that it was the university only like in our last two years right yeah i think our gig scene started overlapping probably last or last winter or something like that yeah. to be honest i feel like you dragged me into it <laughs> yeah a little bit yeah. i think that i was i was booked to do friday night jazz at monty's and i was telling eric to come out and come jam and through that i think we both kind of stumbled into playing more and more bar gigs here we are today yeah cool yeah music has been a very good way of getting students involved in the greater municipality. I, it's really cool. The I, arts, really. Yeah. I have lots of friends and acquaintances who never really stepped outside of the Queens community into the Kingston community. Look at me now. I'm 28 years old. I'm back here. I was an under. I was one of those undergrads running around the, running around Aberdeen. My point being is like I think music has been a really great catalyst for individuals who are involved at Queens as students become individuals involved with Kingston. Absolutely. And I think if we're talking about Queens being a really insular community, the Kingston community is the complete opposite of that. Like I think I've come to value the intergenerational relationships that we've been able to develop with other musicians that are like so much more experienced just to be a little bit in over your head and be playing alongside greats essentially, I think is something that's unique to the Kingston Local scene. Local legends. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, 
that everyone is so welcoming and um, just wanting to raise the scene up with with you as well. It is really humbling and and sobering to study from these people and all of a sudden one day you're just standing on the same bandstand (laughs) at a bar. Later on, you're grabbing a beer. And then sometimes, I mean, one instance, I was... I became friends with this uh, a person and then they went on to become part of the faculty teaching me i only mentioned that to, to say just how like connected and how like welcoming the kingston's community mm-hmm. has been anybody can show up anybody who wants to do it and really really just loves it can become part of this community and be welcomed we were talking about this earlier i think it helps that the size makes it a little bit more approachable mm-hmm. that being said the size has not, nothing to do with the wealth of talent and passion here not just talent it's it's really cool sorry if this turns a little too pg-13 sometimes it becomes a little bit of a circle jerk in the sense that like we're always <laughs> we're always talking about like how great our scene is and how welcoming it is and but it, it, it truly is it feels that way like like i said i was a student who became a kingstonian you guys, you guys yeah. have as well. All of us have. Yeah. I think the difference between the Queen's community and the Kingston art scene is some people just kind of only live here cyclically. And it's been interesting with everything going on. Watching like most artists and musicians that I know have stuck around because they're embedded in the Kingston community. And I think that some people come here for Queen's but stay for Kingston. And I, I don't even mean stay for their lifetime, but just you stay the summer, you get involved with the community and you, you make a life of it kind of thing. I've appreciated that a lot. Because you get just, just one little step in and you realize just how welcoming it is. You're like, yeah. I could spend some more time here. Why not? And I think for us, it's been a really incredible place to come up as jazz musicians because it can be a little bit daunting to sort of break into gigging and start learning all of these tunes and understanding how to navigate chord changes yeah. and you know the whole lot. To be perfectly honest, I don't think I would have gotten nearly as familiar with this genre of music if it if I hadn't come to Kingston. Yeah, definitely. Before this, I, I was I had a um a distant appreciation for jazz. I loved listening to it. I loved like watching people play it, but I never thought I could do it. Mm-hmm. And even, then even while in these <laughs> pro, even while playing in jazz ensembles, I didn't think I could really be a jazz musician. That was going to be my next question for you: Is on those first few gigs, like, did you feel just in over your head? No, I felt liberated. Oh, that's nice. I felt like I finally could do. I got to do the thing I just admired from a distance. That's cool. You guys were mentioning local legends earlier, and I think anybody listening who's involved in the jazz community would know. And I've talked with a couple of people here at the station that are involved with that community. But Kingston does have some very experienced, very talented, very knowledgeable musicians who work in mm-hmm. jazz here. Are there any particular names you want to just quickly shout out? Zach Colbert, truly a legend and like um, been a big gem in this community for not only just bassists, but just the whole community. Like there's so many people who are not to talk down kings because I gen- I generally love this place, but sometimes you you notice how small it is. So when you mm-hmm. see someone that amazing, you wonder how did you how why are you settled down here? Couldn't you be in New York, just gigging and like <sighs> being a big shot musician? <laughs> 
And you see a number of those people around here that could make it in pretty much any city, but they chose to stay here. It gives you a nice little warm feeling inside. Yeah. To know them not only as performers, but also as friends, peers. Peers, especially, is something that makes you feel more encouraged to continue. Definitely. I think for both of us coming from Queens, the biggest figures in our jazz education have been Dave Barton and Greg Runyon's and like unexpressible respect for both of them and especially gigging a lot with Dave this year like he's just incredibly humble and especially the first the first couple of of gigs that I had I was like just so in over my head I didn't know any of these (laughs) two get very scared oh I was just this is this is a lot because you've seen him he does not give off the same energy that I experienced when I was younger trying to go out to jams and things like that um he's incredibly humble and wants everyone around him to succeed and is an educator educator, at heart is an educator there's a very strong sense of nurturing in the community and for us working with alex tuknenko with the music monday band he's been very um like wanting us to succeed and we've definitely risen to the occasion of the opportunities that have been presented to us and learning from spencer is a wild ride (laughs) Oh, Spencer Evans. Like, it's just being constantly surrounded by people that inspire you. That, that I could not sit only here welcome and... you, but actively push and pull you towards it. Mm-hmm. That's how music scenes in general continue to exist, is when people are inspiring each other. Yeah. Yeah. And we recently had the opportunity to collaborate with the the Firebird Collective, which is a female forward jazz initiative started by Selena Chirelli. And Chantel Thompson and Caroline Quaker are very involved with that. And that was sort of something that ran as a residency at Miziki last summer. And through that, it was a really incredible opportunity of meeting specifically like women in jazz that are trying to explore the genre and be more comfortable. And I really appreciate all the work that they've done. Yeah, there's just a lot of people that are, are very focused around making Kingston an inclusive community. And I hope that that continues. I think it's also now kind of up to us to carry on that. Keep that up. Yeah. What people before us have done. What our forebears have really. <laughs> <laughs> nice word. I like it. <laughs> to yeah. be honest, I've been watching a lot of British television. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this, this, uh, this is a very random topic. But on, uh, do you ever watch QI? Quite interesting. No? Anyway. Just some person there just like said the word, and for some reason I've just been saying for the last week. So, got to always open man. conversation. Don't never heard of cops, but seen QI, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Something I always ask artists off the record at some point when I'm getting to know them, even if it's outside of the show. But I think I want to have this recorded because I think it. If we're talking about jazz and we're talking about its institutionalization and where it's coming from, do you guys mind if we talk a little bit about, you know, your early years of learning music? Oh, I hated it. Yeah. (laughs) If you have a family who has money and is able to put you into education at some point, and unfortunately for me, I was very ungrateful and I was like, yeah, institutionalized music's for nerds, man. And uh, there's a lot of people who feel that way. But it's uh, it's also can be a great tool to help you grow as a musician and, and also give you the ability to play with others more efficiently. So that being said, Eric, if you want to start, what was the first instrument you started playing in a institutionalized sense? 
And uh, how old were you? I've always really played music in an institutionalized sense, to be honest. I started piano when I was about three. I, I just say three as a ballpark measure, probably, definitely between three and four. Um, and I had, it's always been a kind of on and off thing for me. Right now it's on. <laughs> right now I'm very much on the ball for the piano playing, but it's definitely changed over the years. I started with, uh, and Canadian musicians will be well, oh, people who studied institutionalized music will be well familiar with RCM. Oh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, we started with that. My parents, uh, we weren't that well off, but they had the opinion, rightfully so, that music was important for children to learn at a young age and that, that like learning piano, good idea. I promptly quit when I was around, I don't know, eight. <laughs> and then after that, I think I might have started up lessons. It's all, it's all a fog, <laughs> a blurry haze of just practicing, I guess. But I might have started lessons again, but I never got far in the RCM. And then I just, after that, I picked it up for myself because when I was doing the, the RCM stuff, it was always more like I was practicing because my parents were telling me to, because I needed to do something for my teacher, because I was getting prepped for this test, for the exam. And like not, not knocking on the RCM because it's a very good curriculum. It's a very good way to teach people music and how to, it's a good it's way a great it, it got, tool, yeah, yeah it's a great learning tool it got me started and like i do appreciate it in that manner but i did find it restricting unbeknownst to me back in, in the day when i was younger i didn't realize how much i hated how restricting i it felt a lot of people feel that way sorry to interrupt a lot of people feel that way about institutionalized music in general and when i actually started playing piano again this time of my own choice i didn't even play like music that i guess would be more typical like popular music i i went right back into the rcm books <laughs> started playing pieces that i enjoyed playing instead of just learning the list just for the sake of the exam i, just, I played pieces i liked and i played them however i liked that was a pretty easy way for me to start enjoying music again because it was on my own terms and then i picked up the trombone that was for my band program really in school in school yeah it was a stroke of luck really because when i started playing it it felt right it felt right uh, i only kept doing it <laughs> i didn't like the sound of the trombone to be honest <laughs> i still think of myself primarily as a trombonist but uh i've never had strong opinions of the trombone starting off and i only kept on doing it because it it just felt nice to play it felt nice yeah. to play it well and like the sound was just a byproduct of me blowing the, the, the instrument it was just simply a byproduct and it wasn't until i got to university and started studying under my my teacher chantal she and my peers opened my eyes and ears to what the trombone really could sound like by extension i i started listening to more trombone specific jazz and, and here we are yeah yeah here we are we were just talking about that the other day about how insane anyone must be to continue playing these band instruments because they sound so terrible they for don't like sound great for such an extended period of time for someone to put up with to be honest yeah like three or four years but I, I guess it's just the lack of self-awareness of of being a young person and know, enjoying right? it in the process to be honest i don't think i ever really listened to myself 
until like recordings were put face to face you know and it's even more difficult when it's a when it's a like a multi-tonal instrument you know it's not like the guitar or the piano where it's press this thing to make this note it's you gotta know the position oh my god which is it it can be used as a benefit too yeah but it's this like lifelong pursuit of your sound exactly and this kind of vague concept of doing transcriptions and listening to players that you kind of want to sound like and mashing them together to develop your concept of your sound <laughs> mm-hmm. and then just trying different things with your mouth to like make it sound <laughs> like, like that. how do i get closer maybe if i just do this shape and you're like would that change something but i don't like that even people who don't learn music from an institutionalized perspective or setting it's the same thing that's what it is that's what most art is just yeah. imitation yeah imitation and also this like greater pursuit of you think that you will one day find what you are supposed to sound like or create like Like, or exist and you think that maybe that will be different than what anything else has ever been (laughs) to be honest i don't even care if it's not different (laughs) no i mean not personally if you have a concept of if i woke up tomorrow and i sounded like dexter gordon i wouldn't be mad about it (laughs) exactly you're like wow that's that's a, a welcome surprise so it's a, a process of emulation until you're at a point of personal sound development, but you have to walk before you can run. And you were talking about getting to university and experiencing sort of a shift in the music that you were listening to and the concept of what you wanted your personal like trombone sound to be like. I definitely experienced that. If I think back to the early like jazz and saxophone music that I was listening to, when we talk about tonality, we often talk about it on a spectrum of like bright and dark and bright would be sort of more crisp, more clear. I would describe saxophone bright tone as kind of nasal and that's sort of more what classical music goes for. Nasal is kind of a (laughs) negative, it's got a negative ring to it, but that's just kind of how I associate it with. And dark is kind of that like grounded, it's a little bit like more you would think about those like warm, like the think about those like smoky jazz guys, like the Dexter Gordon kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but then bright tone would be like the Kenny G like pop saxophone. Yeah. And I definitely, when I, when I was a kid, I was like, there were a couple pop songs that came out in like the mid 2000s. Started using some saxophone, right? That started yeah. using the saxophone. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. That's, you nice know, that's, stuff, that's yeah. like a good, and it, it made it accessible and it made it kind of exciting and it made it kind of a funny bit to do in a band room. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it also affected like my concept of sound was a lot brighter when I was younger because I was listening to more popularized or like funk saxophone and because a lot of the only like women in in jazz that played saxophone that I could find were more like popularized artists like I was listening to a lot of Candy Dolver who's this like crazy crazy pop saxophone and she just does a ton of altissimo and gets really high in the register but she's got a super bright tone and now I think I've I've evolved throughout the years and looking for more like a lot darker and more subtone kind of kind of sound so if we're talking about your pursuit and your journey towards where you want to be i asked eric to go through his early years and how it started how did it start for you helena i sang in a lot of choirs when i was a kid my public school had a choir that was randomly mandatory for every child in the school so we had a 300 person choir (laughs) that's crazy it was kind of cool i don't know that is that it is was, impressive. It was really cool. It was like who was in charge of conducting that? 
Yeah, wait. Mr. Wexworth. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> what a legend. 300 people. Shout out. It's one thing, but also conducting 300 children? Uh, 300 might be an overestimation, but it was the entire, like, it was from, like, second to fifth grade or something like that. Um, but it was just this weird period of time where everyone, like, went to the gym and sang together. And I just remember it being this, like, massive group. You see enormous children's choirs. It's a bit of a tradition. But What kind of stuff did you sing? You sing something for Remembrance Day. You sing something for this here and there. But I think Winnipeg has a really cool culture of really massive musical ensembles. There's a couple high schools that have 150-piece concert bands. Brandon... University has some really, really massive ensembles. I don't really know what it is, but that was just sort of the, the culture that I I formatively grew up in. And then I moved to Ottawa, and I kind of stumbled into an incredible middle school and high school band program, and the Ottawa music community has enormous supports for um, the Ottawa public school system having sort of honor bands that lead to better honor bands that lead to like more and more advanced musical opportunities that are all pretty well supported by the public school system if you're willing to put in the time and effort to learn the music and make the auditions. You kind of have equal access to being in these really great ensembles. I was able to have a lot of really great opportunities and learn how to be in jazz big bands and massive concert bands, eventually playing a little bit with the Carlton Jazz Band and then coming out to Queens. And um, I guess I skipped the part about saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> I was ask, like, how did yeah, you start? So I, yeah, my middle school program, I landed in saxophone. I've played mostly alto saxophone and then dabbled with the other ones throughout, and that's been really fun. But how did you start? How did, did you just, off the top, you knew you wanted to play sax? I picked bass. Played bass. I oh. picked bass, and then, um, and then for some reason, your school, they told unlike me, every other school, had a had too few saxes. No, they told me I had big hands. <laughs> what? Isn't that good? They were like, "You have big hands. You'll be good at the saxophone." I was like, "You'd also right. be good yeah, at the bass." Yeah, you'd still be good at so. the bass. Yeah. I know. I'm. I'm still a little. I don't Wait, know, did you want to play electric bass or double bass? Both would have been cool, right? Yeah. So I guess I started saxophone. Ooh, it's been a decade, which is pretty cool. And it's been interesting in the last couple of years thinking about it just being kind of the majority of my life and what to do with it now. And we were talking about sort of the next sort of goals. And I think that through the process of being at Queen's, we've had a lot of really awesome opportunities of trying out different genres and playing with a whole bunch of different people and having some really great experiences. And through that, I've, I've had the opportunity to get into a little bit of classical music, which I never really thought that I would experience because I sort of came up with the concept of saxophone was only for jazz. And it was only at university that I was really introduced to that being not considered the case. And so I think for a while I kind of developed a little bit of a classical sound and did some really cool performances with saxophone quartets and the whole competition process is cool. It's been really nice actually this last year sort of taking a big step back from that and just focusing on jazz and reassessing sort of what I have as my own concept of, of sound and, and what we want to do musically. I think there's been more of a direction towards funk and fusion and extended technique and contemporary stuff. And the Kingston community has been really great and given us a lot of opportunities to showcase kind of whatever we want. People are just kind of interested in seeing 
what new things are coming out. So it's just been, it's been a great experience. Now you, you mentioned an interesting thing because you do come from the, uh, if, if it were on a spectrum, you'd be from the jazz side of things coming towards. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely came from the other end, the classical end going towards, I guess, the center. Because I guess in a way we both went to the center and then now we're both in jazz. Mm-hmm. But it was, that was an interesting thing to me to think about. Yeah. I think I kind of had to unlearn my own elitism around it, to be honest, because I think you came from probably the side of classical being um, maybe more respected and more structured. And I came from the side of because the um, opportunities available to me when I was like in high school, um, the frame of reference was always that the jazz opportunities, the jazz big bands, like, and it's true, they were more challenging and you had to work harder to be able to play that music. And so when we got to Queens and the, the focus is really lacking in, in the jazz department and um, when it was less of a focus and it wasn't considered like the thing that you should strive for, it was just kind of jarring to me for a little bit there. And to have to work a little bit harder at classical music was was a shift for me. I'm sure it was the opposite for you. I guess for me, it's always just been I've had more opportunities to do classical because, like, I didn't have many ensembles outside of what was provided to me for school. I'm sure there were plenty of opportunities. I just didn't have the resources to get there. But and in and schools most of the time they would teach you the classical stuff more than the jazz. I was involved in every jazz band I could get my hands on, but only through the school. So, and also coming from uh, the my starting point of, of RCM piano, clearly there's a, a kind of foundation that I was comfortable with as a, as a budding musician. So coming to Queens to a classical program, after my sister had gone to this program, I was very much aware of what I was getting myself into. So I guess, it, yeah, for you, it would have been very jarring for me. It was as expected, but more of a liberation for me because I didn't have to do sciences or maths anymore because it was just music. So I mm-hmm. could just explore my instrument and then hopefully lock myself into doing something I really enjoyed. And I guess on, on my end of things, I should acknowledge that I also did take private lessons when I was in high school, and that was really excellent. I studied with um, Brian Aslan. He was really cool. He's got a really cool funk band out now. And definitely taking private lessons is is the only reason that I am able to understand anything about jazz in the way that I am now. I, I don't think that the public school system is set up to really to really teach it quite yet. No. Personally, I didn't experience any opportunity for jazz, and I don't hear it when I talk to my younger family members who are interested in music. It's still just primarily focused on classical, even though we talked about jazz becoming institutionalized. Mm-hmm. There doesn't seem to me to be a lot of opportunity for institutionalized music for jazz at a younger age. Yeah. Especially not here in Canada, right? I would like to elaborate on the concept of institutionalized music, because I think when I initially said that something that I I think is really important to acknowledge is similarly to my experiences and something that I witnessed a lot growing up is part of jazz becoming institutionalized is that talent and privilege are easily misinterpreted. Like a big aspect of how one is able to 
perform and the sound that they have and the level of technique that they have stems from private lessons that are expensive, stems from the opportunity of having hours on end to practice instead of having a job necessarily in high school. A hundred and one other things, what band program someone ends up in, the people around them, whether or not they have the resources to afford post-secondary education, even once you're at post-secondary, are you locked in a practice room while you're at university or are you working every night? There are a lot of things that contribute to someone sounding the way that they do sound. And I think that within jazz, a big issue with the elitism is how incredibly expensive it is to attend some of the higher level. Like it's it's a little bit more leveled out in in Canada, but in the States, it's in, incredibly, incredibly expensive to go to. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't it cost money to join some of these bands? That like those programs, like some honor bands, they do co- charge you a membership fee uh, even after you audition, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So typically there are annual fees that are associated with like most of those things. In the ensembles that I was in, I don't actively remember, but I don't think that it was extremely high. And I don't think that it was, I think it was probably like a hundred bucks a year kind of thing. Okay. And I think that there were bursaries for it. Um, but I have heard of examples in different communities where it is much higher but I think beyond just like any given organization charging a fee for it what goes into people making an audition is an enormous amount of privilege I know that at the top tier when I was sort of on my way to university all the other people that I knew that were on their way to university for music we were in sort of the same same thing and a hundred percent of those people were in private lessons that's just an organized group of of privilege, you know, and that is also what university is. Do we really know many people who got to university without ever having private lessons of some kind, voice, piano, theory, like, I don't think that our music program was set up for someone who had had only public schooling education. I don't think you could pass theory off of what a public school teaches you in music class. Yeah, I would agree. I do have my own opinions on that because... I just think that people should be funding public schools more. Absolutely. That that like, I think most musicians that when we get to a point in our lives realize like, well, I'm not learning classical or jazz music anytime soon, but I think most musicians realize how much of a barrier to entry there is. They do. Yeah. Even at step one, what does an instrument cost? Yeah. Mm. What does what does each instrument cost like a band program is a real indication of privilege and status of just the income of a community because if a school isn't able to provide those instruments what do the rentals cost Mm. um do the kids whose parents go off and buy them a professional level instrument do those kids sound better immediately have more confidence go on to do better things absolutely it's the same thing as bill gates went to a private high school that had one of the yeah. first computers that ever existed. That's right. But really. Yeah. yeah. His that. high school had a fundraiser and just purchased one of the first ever computers. So he was about two years ahead of most people in ever interacting with a computer at all. And then because he went to that school and that was their priority they continuously updated the computers and he ended up forming microsoft forming microsoft (laughs) is that a product of his innate talent 
or is that a product of privilege and access to information and, and time. Equip, equipment and time? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's always that uh, that uh, question of nature versus nurture. Yeah, so I think that a whole other can of worms. Yeah. That's its own thing. Yeah. My point is essentially that within music, there's an enormous amount of privilege, and I think that we need to make it more accessible. But I also think part of what makes Kingston great is that people are not judgmental. Everyone understands that most people are very understanding of you're coming from wherever you're coming from and they'll help you to sort of climb and become a better musician because they understand that not everyone starts on a level playing field. Yeah, that not everyone starts on a level playing field, that um, talent is not innate. And I think that a lot of other communities fail to recognize that. I think there's just the higher competition gets, the further you get away from from that kind of a situation. But I think that that's something that everyone needs to keep in mind in, in most aspects of their life is to understand that not everyone is coming from whatever opportunities and abilities that you are coming from. What does it actually take to be in this industry? Well, you have to be able-bodied most of the time in order to just access half the places we have gigs. You have to be comfortable being in the setting that you're going into. in a lot of those settings that are not always like the most welcoming right off the bat also if just from your home life you need i'm sure there's cases where musicians who found time and success to become who they are today didn't have supportive parents but they have le- at least usually would have had to have had one parent who was supportive at the very least so if your parents aren't supportive of that and like they're the ones paying for it <laughs> and they dismiss the idea of it being silly. I don't know. I think it's interesting because it becomes this whole conversation about why art is deemed non-essential, but it's because you're the way our economy is built is you're not going to get paid as much as a, a physicist. If you're a musician, if you're the best musician yeah. in the world versus the best heart surgeon in the world, you're going to make more as the heart surgeon. It's just the way our society is kind of, and don't get me wrong. Health is very important. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's just societally, we, we place importance, more importance on things that usually generate more income. Like you said with Bill Gates, he's one of the biggest computer whizzes of all time. Like he's, he has a very deep knowledge of technology, but he's making again, much more money than the most talented musician of all time. I saw, I read something very, um, I'm just going to say it. I, I saw a post that just basically said, technically, most people are closer to being a millionaire than Bill Gates is. Because on the other side of the spectrum, Bill Gates is way off oh. from yeah, being yeah. a millionaire. You're closer to being a million dollars. Billionaires. <laughs> can, can we leave that in? Billionaires shouldn't exist. I have a more favorable opinion on Bill Gates than most well, yeah, because at least he does a lot of work towards, like, actual R&D and furthering society yeah. instead of just hoarding money. But once again, billionaires shouldn't really exist. You don't need that much money, guys. I mean, I wish... The show should be a political program, too, but <laughs> I 100% agree. If we keep it on topic, just in this thing that we're talking about, about how music is essentially the product of access to equipment, access to education, 
ability to nurture a community, if we're tying it back to why billionaires suck, is among all of the magic things that they could do if they didn't keep hoarding their money, you could just make music one hundred percent accessible. You could buy an instrument for every single person on this planet, and it wouldn't even make a dent in your entire life. You wouldn't even notice. It would be like one of your summer houses but, gone. Yeah, well, you know, all, all their assets aren't liquid. They can't just <laughs> they can't just get do rid that of them. in this economy. Come on. <laughs> this economy actually is an interesting thing about like what it takes to even just get involved with music because music became very popular among just the the public instead of just the royalty historically when the middle class had its boon but when that happened they had more leisure time they had more money and chamber music became a very popular thing and and it became a very popular pastime to just make music at home with your family members or friends and that also saw a boost to the music industry that now that they're amateur musicians you can write music and sell your music to people who would buy it because mm-hmm. they want to play it they might not want to perform it they might not be dedicated enough to make it a living a career but they are interested in playing it for, for leisure and like and i say middle class because it takes a certain amount of funds to get to that level yeah of just being able to spend time leisurely playing music and yeah. now music is still a seen as a leisurely activity yeah there's been something weird about this whole non-essential labeling i think after that labeling happened people have come to realize that oh we take there might be an issue with labeling some things as essential and non-essential because what else are you going to do when you're just sitting at home for the whole week with nothing to do if you didn't have music if you didn't have films all these arts art in general yeah you're right eric most of my time when uh, the world is trying to figure out what the next steps were was reading books, listening to music, playing video games, watching, <laughs> watching movies. movies. Yeah. 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 It was just everybody took solace in the arts and it's happened time and time again that the arts have pulled people through bad times. And also you, if you just look at music and what music was being made at what times you can chart it and link it back to certain times just movements political movements hardships you can you can see the progression and see what they're talking about very true that's very insightful i would agree well we have broken the record for length of time recording this is very fitting for our final episode and i'm very happy that i got to have two people who were not only so ready to perform but so ready to talk about like a wealth of issues that we haven't even talked about in the show that needed to be talked about and also talking about yourselves too I'm, I'm very happy i got to learn more about you guys personally and musically and you're both we're all three of us are all very young but you guys are very young especially compared to the like you mentioned the jazz legends in this community and i'm really excited to even if you guys move out of kingston see you guys progress and grow it's going to be a good time yeah thank you for having us and organizing all of this my pleasure personally i think i get just as much out of it as anyone else who comes out of the show, possibly even more because I've done it a handful of times already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. This was this was really no wonderful. Problem. Thank you. Thank you for supporting local musicians.
and to you, the listener, <laughs> for, for also uh, supporting local musicians. I yeah. love it. <laughs> You're listening to Brought Back Home on the CFRC 101.9 FM. This was Helena and Eric of a whole bunch of projects, but the one they're promoting today is Room Tone. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That's it. This is the final episode of Brought Back Home. If you'd like to listen to the extended cut of this episode along with past episodes of Brought Back Home, you can check them out on podcasts.cfrc.ca or on any major podcast streaming platform. Unfortunately, we only had an opportunity for eight episodes of the show. There are many, many more talented artists here in Kingston that I wish we could have had on the show. But with that being said, I'm always talking to and working with local artists. You can find me on Instagram with the handle at Matt Music. And the CFRC will actually be airing another show in the fall that I'm hosting, producing, and editing titled Timeline Rewind. So stay tuned here on the CFRC and online for more info on that. And last but not least, I'd like to thank everyone that's helped with the show. Room Tone, Helena Hannibal, Eric Liu, Celine Klein, Mariah Horner, Sarah Emtage, Maddie Scoville, Hinterwood, Willie Nilly, Jonah Bates, Kamaya Tiechtmeyer, Josiah Asko, Max Tinline, Owen Fullerton, Emily Steele, Jessica Nielsen, Tyson Sullivan, Liam Neal, Alto Stratus, Sarah Widiak, Sean Bain, Dinah Jansen, Dean Hayden, and Steph Nyhouse. Thanks, everybody. It's been a great show. Take care.